0: One of the things that I love about reading Torah week in and week out is that the Torah gives us, excuse me, the Torah gives us a way in, week in and week out, to think about things that we might think about ordinarily, but often are held on the back burner of our hearts and our minds. The Torah brings issues to the fore and presents them. To us and says, take a look at this. This week's Torah portion is no different. Yaakov's long journey has come to an end at long last. As he settles in the land where his father lived, Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Migure Aviv, Be'eretz Kanaan. But as Rashi, the great medieval exegete, Comments on Vayeshev Yaakov, and Yaakov settled the word Vayeshev, which has a connotation of Yeshiva, which to sit down. He had a rest. Finally, Yaakov has a respite from all of the craziness of his life. Kofa rogue social, Yosef. Lodayan latzadikim. It's not enough Rashi comments, quoting Midrash Rabbah, that righteous people have a reward in the world to come, but they also want to have a life that is easy? Here is Jacob prematurely, possibly, requesting his reward, his just reward, for having lived a life of suffering, of trial, and tribulation, of travail. It wasn't to be. Joseph leaps on him, the issue of Joseph the whole story of Joseph, the most complex, the most written about, the most literarily beautiful, possibly, narratives, certainly the longest narrative in Chumash, a full 13 chapters of the book of Genesis devoted to the Joseph narrative, the Joseph story. And so what issue immediately appears to us in this week's Torah portion I know that whenever I read this week's Torah portion, I can't help but be a little bit, maybe more than a little bit, confronted by Yosef's narcissism. In this week's Torah portion, the grandiosity of Joseph is laid bare before us. The Hunar the Aviv and he was watching over them. He naard, he, odd word in the Bible, right? We're introduced to Joseph. Who was Joseph? He was 17 years old. And he was N-A-A-R-ing his step, his stepmother's children, who na'ar, N-A-A-R, na'ar. It's a very odd word to be used as a verb. It literally means he was youthful. Na'ar is a, a kid says the Midrash, picking up on this, Why was it necessary to tell us he was young when they already told us that he was 17? Why does it tell us that he was kidding with the stepchildren or with the stepmother's children because he was acting immaturely, says the Midrash. He would act like an adolescent. He would twirl his hair. He would fix his eyes. He had a gait. He had a kind of walk. Very regal, very majestic. The Torah is more than slightly hinting to us at this rabbinic read. At least in this rabbinic read, the Torah is is giving us a window. It's true that most of the rabbinic commentaries struggle. How can you call a righteous person, Joseph Joseph is a righteous man, and they do somersaults to try to figure out how this midrash means anything relevant to us, but on a simple reading. We have here a problem of immaturity. And it's most accurately expressed in his wearing of the katonid basim, the little coat of colors, long-sleeved tunic, his, his vision that he had to tell his brothers about his dreams. So what we have, in essence, this week, is a conversation about grandiosity, And it's opposite humility in our spiritual lives, in our day-to-day lives. As we journey towards freedom, grandiosity usually takes two forms, one more obvious than the other. The first face of grandiosity is grandiosity about my gifts. The grandiosity about our gifts is really the birthright trip that everybody goes on. Regardless of whether we feel specially gifted or specially wounded, being special feels like a birthright, something to be secretly proud of, knowing no one will ever be or feel quite like us. We learn our first Grandiosity lesson, of course, on the small stage of the family. The grandiosity of the child is that everything centers around me. When anything happens in the family, my mother or father immediately respond. Everything, in essence, is about me. I went to a movie last night called My Reincarnation. And in the movie, the movie is about... A Tibetan Lama, a Tibetan teacher, who, um, it's an amazing film, who is uh, uh, trying to connect with his wayward, estranged son, assimilated Tibetan in, in, in Italian culture. And there's one particular scene where the teacher, the guru, Norbu, is talking to a little girl, his granddaughter, and he says to her, who's more important, you or the Buddha? And she says, oh, the Buddha. She's trying to be a good girl, you know. <laughs> and then he says to her, I think brilliantly, he says, when you have to eat, do you feed the Buddha? She says, no. He says, who do you feed? She, said, I feed me. Oh. And when you have to sleep, does the Buddha sleep? And she says, no. Who sleeps? You sleep. And then she got it, she said, yeah. Everything I do is about me. And then he says to the camera, and that's the problem. (laughs) The dreams, the coat. When we feel as though the only way that we can express ourselves in the world The only way that we have a place in the world is when our gift is so profound, it's so unique. My gifts, my dreams, my calling, my vocation. Of course, the irony, this exaggerated sense of self, this creates a distance. It creates a separation from others. If my gifts are so unique, then of course... There's no way for us to connect. If my gifts are so unique, then when I'm with you, I'm not really with you. You're there for me. After all, everything revolves around my gifts. Now, many of us are familiar with that, that need for the gift to be unique, to be special, But an even more subtle form of grandiosity is a grandiosity that connects us with a wound. The grandiosity of the wound runs something like this. No one ever has been hurt the way that I have been hurt. (laughs) Search high and low, near and far. The contours of my life's story, the particular scar tissue that I carry, and in the particular way that I carry it, don't you dare take that from me. That belongs to me and me alone. My wound becomes a way of interacting with the world in a in a posture of specialness. Never has anyone undergone what I had to go through This feeling of being broken and this wound. It is in a sense what we bring to each encounter and subtly creates distance and separation between us. In our everyday lives, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi used to say, our thinking is 99% self-centered and 1%. Right? That's the One percent, really, (laughs) about the other. Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have trouble? He says this kind of thinking makes us attached to how important we are, how important our suffering must be. Suzuki Roshi goes on to say, it is just you yourself, nothing special. When we're small, often, but not always, family at least the families that I know of, they rarely spoke about deep emotions, shared, very human tenderness. And in those families often, emotions like sadness and anger, basic stuff of life, because it's not shared in a very ordinary way, we own it as if it becomes our pedigree, our sadness, our joy, when really it's just the lively exchange of moment to moment living. The emotions, thoughts, feelings, our gifts, our wounds easily passing between us and another heart without any sense of its being special or different. It's just me sharing me with you sharing you. The word in our tradition for that basic fundamental quality is ordinary, nothing special, nothing special. Trung Tzu wrote, the man of Tao remains unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self. And the greatest man is nobody. If we are not so important, we are no longer responsible for living up to the imagined expectations of a universe infatuated with our every move. Instead, we are set free to live each moment listening to what is true in our body, our heart, our mind and spirit without scrutinizing every move for signs of greatness. I couldn't believe my eyes this morning when I received a very important news alert. Matis Yahu, the great Jewish music star, has shaved his beard. I couldn't believe it. I opened up my windows and I started screaming as everybody heard. I called up my mother, my great aunt, she's 102. I couldn't believe it. I need to know that he shaved his beard. He's now clean-shaven. He's on a new stage of his evolution. I am so thankful for that information. (laughs) The truth of the matter is that when we need people to see us as special, we focus primarily on our need and cannot hear the depth and breadth of who they are in that moment, in our rush to be special I do not honor the common humanity that binds me to others. The truth is, none of us is more special than the other. Each of us has our particular list of gifts. What Joseph Campbell called our umbilical point. The umbilical point, he writes, is the humanity, the thing that makes you human, not supernatural and immortal. And that, my friends, he writes, is what's lovable. So just as we took refuge in this special, we can learn to take refuge in being ordinary, not being in charge, not being the center of the universe. Rumi reminds us, do you think I know what I'm doing, he writes, that for one breath or half breath I belong to myself? As much as the pen knows what it's writing or the ball can guess where it's going next. Living an ordinary life, a life full and rich with experience that is particular to each of us, without the twittery infatuation with being seen and noticed, without the need for applause, approval, or disapproval of our constant imagined audience, will free us to live in what poet Mark Nepo called the unwatched space the unwatched space. In a poignant piece, and with this I'll finish, writing immediately after having gone into surgery for cancer and having had a rib removed, Nepo writes, I cried because I had not only been physically opened but also opened beneath my sense of being watched. Somehow the unwatched space was given air Though I could explain it to no one, my sobs were sobs of relief and water of a dishelled spirit-soaking ground. Years have passed and I wait long hours in the sun to see the birch fall of its own weight into the lake. And it seems to punctuate God's mime. Nothing sad about it. Now the audience of watchers is gone and I can feel life happen in its quiet, vibrant, without anything interfering and now sometimes at night when the dog is asleep and the owl is beginning to stare into what no one ever sees I stand on the deck and feel the honey of the night spill over the stars feel it coat the earth the trees the minds of children half asleep I feel the stillness evaporate all notions of fame into the unwatched space that waits for light in this undistorted silence, the presence of God is a kiss. It is here in this unwatched space that peace begins. May all of us here be blessed with living our lives with the humility that comes with living in the unwatched spaces. And Let us all say, Amen.